What do you get when you put a physicist, a biologist, and a data scientist in the same body? Well, you're about to find out. In this episode, you'll meet Osvaldo Martin. Osvaldo is a researcher at the National Scientific and Technical Research Council in Argentina, and he is notably the author of the book Bayesian Analysis with Python, whose second edition was published in December 2018. He also teaches bioinformatics, data science, and Bayesian data analysis, and he's a core developer of PyMC3 and RVs, and recently started contributing to Bambi. Originally biologist and physicist, Osvaldo trained himself to Python and Bayesian methods, and what he's doing with it is pretty amazing. We also touch on how accepted are Bayesian methods in his fields, which models he's currently working on, and what it's like to be an open source developer. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 1, recorded September 19, 2019. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.anvil.app. That's learn base stats that anvil that app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm okay. So, Osvaldo Martin, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, taking the time. So as I said in the intro to the show, you wear a lot of hats. <laughs> so I'm curious, what's a typical day for you? What do you do day in and day out? And also, what is bioinformatics? Basically, I think I'm the regular academic, no? Doing a lot of stuff, not only the, the stuff we want to do, but at least I try. I spend uh, some time mentoring students. I mentor PhD students at the moment and sometimes undergrads, but not at this particular moment. And I try, at least I try to spend most of the day around Bayesian statistics. This means trying to write code or write material to teach Bayesian statistics. And also I try to spend some time of the day uh, reading a book or papers about Bayesian statistics. But a lot of time, of course, is spent checking Slack and checking emails and filling papers just to make things happen. The, the good thing is that my days is very difficult. That is always the same. It's always changing, depending on a lot of time. I mean, it's good because it's not boring, but sometimes... You have like tracked your task or track the time you are seeing to a certain uh, task because otherwise you spend one week and you say, hey, oh, I forgot about this particular things I was doing, yeah. you know. Yeah, I see, yeah. It's relatively easy to, to answer what is bioinformatics for this audience because bioinformatics is basically data science. Yeah. It's data science applied to biology, especially to molecular biology. This is related to genomes, to protein sequence or DNA sequence or the structure of biomolecules that make up cells and make that biology works as it works. So there are a lot of statistical machine learning and methods in use it in bioinformatics, of course, especially tailored to understand this kind of data. And of course, bioinformatics is older than data science. Bioinformatics has like, I think, 
almost 40 years or something like that. But at this point, I think a good definition would be that this data science oh, applied great. to molecular biology. Yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, did you always study bioinformatics? And by that, I mean studying both statistics and biology at the same time? Or did you first start by one of the two and then merge the two fields together? Generally, I work between bioinformatics and another discipline that is biophysics that is more about using physics or theories or methods from physics to understand biology. And I always work in, in the middle. So when I start, I, I did not uh, do a lot of statistics. I work more on this physics kind of stuff. I was working with physicists on these things, so they know a lot of statistics. <laughs> so my statistical analysis were pretty simple, things like fitting data to a Gaussian distribution to see it's more or less Gaussian, or doing very simple linear regression, things like that. In certain sense, I always feel, because I'm a biologist by training, I always feel like a disadvantage with people more trained and more mathematical skills. So I always feel this, I, I need to learn more mathematics and especially I need to learn more statistics. But the problem was that every time I tried to learn something about the statistics, it was always the same problem. I did not understand a thing, not transparent, very <laughs> dark, and was completely not coherent, a lot of recipes disconnected one from the other. It's something that I tried many times. I tried to understand the statistic, I failed, I feel frustrated so I abandon and start keep doing other stuff. Then I say, no, I need to learn statistics and try again. This happened a lot until I find the base in the statistics. That's good to know. That's encouraging, I think, for uh, for listeners. At least at least it's encouraging for me. It, it was very different from, for example, understanding learning to code. Learning to code was very smooth. You know, I start, for example, working with Linux commands, the, the shell, and then I realized, okay, maybe I need to learn something about Python. It was always a spot. It's like always you learn a little bit more than the, than the day before or the month before. Yeah, okay. So you came to statistics by necessity while you were working uh, on physics and, and biology subjects. Oh, yeah. So, and yeah, Osvaldo, how, how did you first uh, get introduced to Python and to Bayesian methods? Was it like some deliberate trust you made or uh, is it something you found like gradually? Mm -hmm. About Python, I was... During my PhD, most code I, I wrote was not exactly code because I was using the, the Linux shell commands, but I wrote scripts you know, to do certain stuff, even with molecules. I just used the bash script to, to work with molecules. I use Fortran also because the physicists, the physics community use a lot of Fortran code. So it was legacy code. And at some point I realized that it should be something better. <laughs> and what I was using. But I was not entirely sure what to use. At the time, I see a lot of people using PER for bioinformatics. I think it's because it's good for sequences, but it's really awful. Uh, but there was many books. But if you, you look for books of bio, um, bioinformatics and coding, you found a lot of, at the time, you find a lot of things with PER. And I'm not sure if it was exactly a moment, but was like signals, you know. For example, there was a software that I use, I still use, that is to visualize uh, molecules, molecule structures, and it's the, the name is PyMo. And the Py is not because it's entirely written in Python, but because you can use Python to do a stuff and you can also use Python to write scripts to automate stuff or, or to like plugins, you know. So that was something that I was interested, the idea of writing plugins for PyMo. 
But probably one thing that made the switch for me was Matplotlib, was when I realized that I was able to do plots, figures, using code. Because a common scenario for me was to do something almost manually, to do some plot, and then discuss with my advisor or other students. And they say, okay, but now why don't you change the font or this or, or the, the scale of that or the color? Of... And you say, okay, you go, it change with your mouse, no? And then say, no, but you know, maybe we also have to change. And was, uh, most of my day at the time was changing plots. So when I found that I could really write code to make plots, 100 plots or 20 plots or whatever, almost instantly, it was like a game changer for me. So I think that was the time I say, okay, I really have to learn Python. And also at the same time, more or less, I found a software that is MMTK, is the name, it's for molecular modeling. Molecular Modeling Toolkit, that's the name. It's also a mix of C, Python, but you use a Python to do the modeling. And I tried to do stuff that I realized was very difficult for me because, I mean, I understand the English, but not the Python, you know? Because, <laughs> so I say, uh, okay, I was almost trial and error. And one day I say, I'm going to learn Python. And I think I read this, uh, the book by Alan Doughton, Think Python. And that was probably the first book that I read from the beginning to the end to understand really Python. And when when was that? So in uh, in what year? Uh, do you remember? When was that? Maybe like eight eight or seven years ago, more or less. I, I don't remember okay. really. And since since <laughs> then, you uh, you've been coding in Python and diving deeper into into the language, right? Yeah, yeah. At some point, I, I even. Um, get a, like a small grant from Paimon to work on this Paimon because at some point I decide I want to contribute to open source. I, I didn't know what to do, but I liked the idea. I was using Ubuntu for a while at the time, but of course contributing to an operating system was my skill and my interest. So I start with this Paimon, but Paimon is a weird thing because it's owned by the company. So a part is open source, but uh, they're part of the features are not open source. So I start looking other places. Then with uh, Bayesian statistics, I remember better the time because I was doing a, a postdoc at Northwestern University, United States. It was part of my postdoc was there and part in, in Argentina. The subject of the postdoc was about the statistical, was more biophysics, more, more about the statistical mechanics. Once I was talking with my advisor there and I was trying to say to him that I did not really like what I was doing. I was more interested in data science or machine learning or data analysis. I'm not remembering if data science was already a term by the time was 2013 I think but I was talking about this and it was <laughs> a little bit funny conversation because I was saying without saying you know yeah the, the guy paid my my airplane tickets he was paying everything there and I was saying okay I don't care about what you do really it's pretty boring but he understood what I was trying to say immediately he said but you should do that that's the future. Uh, there are a lot of things to do to work uh, on, on that field. And if he start mentioning problems he have that probably was uh, better addressed using data analysis tools than the tools that he was using. So he was very encouraged me a lot to do that. And basically, from that moment, he, has, he paid me for uh, reading Bayesian books. I mean, I was doing other stuff, but he realized, okay, it's okay. You read that and finish what you were doing. I'm not going to, to bother you with, with things that you are not really interested. So that was very good to me. And there I find a guy that was doing a 
stuff with Bayesian statistics and some molecular problems. So I see that these two worlds was not completely unrelated. So that's the moment I basically I decided I want to work with Bayesian statistics. More or less at that time, I think I discovered PyMC. That point was PyMC2. I think PyMC3 was under development or still not developed. I don't remember quite well. But I found that and also was like a game changer because I now I realized that was pretty easy yeah, to, so I to think work here, with uh, Bayesian model. We have, uh, I have two follow-up questions for you. It's first... Well, yeah, I think you should introduce the PyMC package to the listeners because we didn't do it yet. And second, why did you find these methods, the Bayesian methods, attractive? Why do you still use them today and try to use them as often as possible, as you said at the beginning of the show? Basically, PyMC is a Python package to perform Bayesian statistics. Basically, what you can do with PyMC is to define a Bayesian model and then to solve the Bayesian model. of have numerical methods to do so, especially NATS, that is a special flavor of Hamiltonian Monte Carlo. It's basically a method that is very general to solve statistical models and very powerful. The good thing of PyMC is that the syntax is pretty clear. It's almost the same thing that you are going to see if you check a statistical book. A statistical model is translate almost one line in the paper, in the book, to one line of Python code. It's very expressive. It's very easy to understand what is going on. And then have this inference magic button. That is, a, <laughs> yeah, that's a term by Thomas Vicky that magically, in generally, magically solves your problems. So you get the result. One thing I keep using, I'm really interested about Bayesian methods. I think is that this idea that the Bayesian statistic is about modeling. When I say this, someone that knows a little bit of a statistic probably may complain and say, but the statistic is about modeling, not only based in statistics. That was not clear to me for a long, long time. When I first said I was confused by a statistic, and I, I think it was when I tried to understand the statistic was basically frequentist method. I see this incoherence between methods and a lot of recipes and not something like a theory that you can follow. I never see this idea of modeling. I see just like things that you plug in to solve your problem. But when you learn about statistics, Bayesian statistics, from the beginning, the idea of modeling is there. All the process of doing Bayesian statistics is like modeling in other fields. And I was, I think, used to this idea of modeling, for example, molecules or problems in biophysics. So the stage of a Bayesian analysis for me is are, are very natural because it's all, what you are doing is basically building a model and seeing if the model is useful for your problem. So I think that's a good thing because you get a lot of flexibility. So it's relatively easy. I'm not saying that it's really easy. It's relatively easy to translate a problem you have into a Bayesian model. And that's something that is, for me, is very difficult with other methods. So for me, it's almost the selling point. And of course, then you get this good thing that you have certain theoretical guarantees that you're doing the things right and you have uncertainty estimation and all that. Well, I Actually, I think uh, I'm a little biased into thinking like you just uh, said, because uh, I was introduced to Bayesian methods thanks to your book. <laughs> so, so, of course, the same uh, ideas about that. But uh, okay. um, actually, you, 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 I encourage listeners actually to, to read your, uh, your book. Uh, it's really interesting and really great to get introduced to Bayesian methods. One of those things in your book that illustrate uh, what you just said is that um, if I remember correctly, the first chapter of the book is really uh, about 
thinking like a Bayesian, like Bayesian thinking and thinking about problems like models and how do you model the and Bayesian models are just a tool you use to build these models and trying to analyze the different problems you're studying? At first, could be difficult is the idea of thinking in terms of uh, probability distributions. I think in general, we are not used to think about this term of probability distributions, but it's not only a problem for a statistic. I have been exposed to things like evolutionary theory, for example, and evolutionary theory only makes sense when you talk about population. It doesn't make sense for particular individuals, but when you study the populations, everything, when, when you understand what you are uh, talking about, our distribution, our populations, everything is easier. And I think it's the same with Bayesian statistics, in general, it's statistics. In general, statistics, when you realize that you're talking about probability distribution at some points or densities or yeah, yeah. whatever and you want to call them, everything thing, is yeah, much also more is to, to think in probabilities and distributions, especially when you deal with the matrix and, and a lot of dimensions, it becomes a, a lot harder. But uh, I guess with uh, some training, you're able to do it. And when you are able to do that, you get a lot for free at the end of your model. Okay, so that's uh, that's interesting. But uh, one question I always ask myself is uh, how widespread and accepted are, are these methods, Asian methods in your academic field? Because as you said, it's not the traditional methods that you are taught uh, at school and at, at university. And so how widespread is it? And I guess in other words, uh, what I'm asking is uh, how hard it is to find co-authors or publish papers that don't revolve around p-values and frequentist p-values. I think they are not very, uh, I mean, they could be more popular based on methods, mm. but I think they in, are in uh, quite so popular in, compared in your, with other fields. I'm not sure if I should talk about bioinformatics as a whole, because bioinformatics at this point is a, like a very mature disciplines with a lot of sub-disciplines. So yeah, I know there are people that use uh, more frequent statistics in and, and some subfields, but in generally, I think Bayesian methods are popular because they are needed to when you, for example, in people that study evolution, when they want to build trees, how proteins or animals or whatever, how they are related, how they evolve, Bayesian methods are there. And generally, when someone came with something, they have to compare with some Bayesian method. In other subfields, there are subfields that are of bioinformatics that are closer to biophysics, I think, for example, things like p-value is almost absent. <laughs> Nobody knows what a p-value is. And so when you talk about Bayesian methods, they are pretty natural. I don't remember, but it was a guy that say something like, if you teach a Bayesian statistics to a physicist, he probably is going to understand a statistic. And if you teach a frequentist method, he's going to abandon the idea of a statistic. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, and one reason is, for example, there, there are many uh, parallels between Bayesian statistics and statistical mechanics. In, in some sense, a statistical mechanic that's an important branch of, of physics is like a probability theory applied to physical systems. So it's a particular case of Bayesian statistics in some sense. So there is this parallel. So when you talk to, to these people, maybe they are not used exactly to the language of Bayesian statistics, but you can say, okay, this term is, this, is what you call that, and this other thing is what you do when you do this. And so it's easier to talk to these people about this. In general, when I talk with my co-author, it's not a problem discussing p-values because we don't discuss p-values. We use different stuff. They generally don't know what <laughs> p-values are. They are more uh, focused on this idea of, maybe they call different, but they are focused on this idea of effect size. 
or basically measuring something and say, this measures something, this is another number, what's the difference, for example, between these two things that I'm measuring? And they want a number in the scale they are used to work, you know, in the same scale of, of the data. They don't want to put things in terms of statistical significance. For most of them, the, the word significance is a, has a very colloquial. You now it's just something that is important. That, that, that's something that I, I used to correct them. When you use the, the word significance, I try to say, avoid that word. Use important or just use another word because maybe when someone is going to read this, they are going to understand we are talking about statistical significance and things like that. So to avoid that, we just maybe use, why, why don't you we use another word? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, from what you say, uh, I have the the feeling that uh, your subfield of uh, bioinformatics uh, seem quite advanced into the Bayesian methods stuff. Don't really use p-values, which is I have to say from my experience really rare because I come from a background of social sciences and in in social science p-values frequentist p-values are still you know the the queen of the game. No, yeah, I, I I understand because sometimes when I teach statistics to students, most of them, especially people from biology or people from psychology, sociology, things like that, at some point they ask you how I compute a p-value with the Bayesian method. So so I, I try to convince them that you don't really need to compute a, a p-value and in generally that's not what you want to compute. In general, I convince them at least for the moment they are yeah, in the classroom. I, I don't know what they do when they go outside, but probably the advisors use p-values or, or the referee use yeah. p-values. Or... Yeah, they go stargazing, uh, as uh, Richard McEnroe say. Uh, I, I love <laughs> yeah. this expression. Like He, he says that people are stargazing <laughs> if they are looking for the stars you know, uh, on the right side of the p-values. It's really a good expression, I think. And um, as long as we're uh, on the subject, I want to talk about the stuff and the models you do on a daily basis and the students uh, you have. But... Uh, uh, since we're on that subject, you know, we often hear that the Bayesian methods focus on inference and not on hypothesis testing, contrary to, to classical methods. I think what you talked about, about Bayesian inference being about modeling and so on, do you think it explained the difference between an inference approach and hypothesis testing one? Maybe can you elaborate on that? I'm not sure what explains the difference, but probably this focus on modeling could be contributing a lot, probably. But I'm not sure why there is this, this difference. Of course, there are people doing hypothesis testing with Bayesian methods, even when I don't really like a lot that, <laughs> that approach. Maybe because Bayesian statistics, I think, more naturally leads to the idea of effect size comparing hypotheses. Because when you start comparing a hypothesis, you go into base factors. And I think it's not that difficult to see the problems with base factors compared, for example, with p-values values are not so transparent. When you try to understand a base factor and you realize, for example, that if you change priors, things uh, can go very wrong, you say, okay, so maybe this is not really a good idea. Or, or at least I have to be extra super careful how I choose priors. So you say, okay, maybe there's something more robust and this more robust things in generally is doing inference instead of this idea of hypothesis testing. So probably that's one reason, but really I'm not sure. Maybe an interesting question is to see the contribution of to Bayesian statistics from people from other fields. I wonder, for example, if physicists have contributed a lot to Bayesian statistics. Maybe they bring this idea of more modeling and this idea of inference 
or effect size hypothesis testing, for example. Yeah, actually, I hope I'll be able to answer your question in a couple of months because it's one of the projects of this podcast is to have some guests from different fields and see how patient methods are used in these different fields. Actually, moving on, I I remember that um, you talk quite a lot. There is an interesting discussion in your book about the limits of base factor and also how do you compute a Bayesian p-value, how it can be useful and how it can be deceiving, etc. So I encourage also your listeners to read about this discussion in your book because it, it goes into more details. And so speaking of your methods, so because you, you, you really insist on the fact of being driven by modeling and inference, how do you do that in your models, in your uh, own models and in your work with the students you have both as a teacher and as an open source uh, developers? Which models are, or projects you work on recently that can interest our listeners? <laughs> okay. Now at, at this point, I'm, I'm in almost, I think, in transition. So I'm moving more to, to baseline statistics per se, and not uh, baseline statistics applied to, for example, biomolecular modeling. But, but I have a PhD student. She's working on applying baseline models and baseline statistics to very long-standing problems in molecular modeling. I don't want to, to go too much in the details, but basically the idea is that I want to learn the structure of a molecule. The structure is basically the, the Cartesian coordinates of these molecules, that these molecules are very flexible and these molecules, you can see the molecules. You have to get some experimental data and combine this experimental data and somehow to obtain this model. One important thing with this is that there are a lot of nuisance parameters. I mean, parameters that you don't really care, but you have to estimate somehow to be able to build your model. Based on statistics is ideal for this stuff because basically you propagate uncertainty everywhere. So if you have uncertainty about the value of these nuisance parameters, you just have to put it in your model and voila. So that's one of the projects. Now I'm working with a PhD student on a promise of applying Bayesian statistics to, to modeling biomolecular structures. And she's basically working on applying Bayesian statistics to different but related problems. One thing that is Bayesian statistics is very good for some of this problem is that when you do this model for molecules, when I, I mean model of a molecule, I mean I need the Cartesian coordinates of every atom in the molecule. That's what we are really interested in. But to be able to, to compute that, you need experimental data and some prior knowledge that you have about the chemistry of the molecule. But sometimes there appear some parameters, some nuisance parameters, this idea of parameters that you don't care, really you don't care, but you have to compute to get your model. Bayesian statistics is very good at doing this because basically you are putting everything you know, your prior information, your, your data, your model, and how probability distributions are related. And so you can get an estimation of these nuisance parameters that generally are very hard to get. And most people just put some value they traditionally, I mean, they put some value they want and say, okay, I'm going to run this model and this is the solution. And they don't care too much about this. So that's one of the projects that is a mix of Bayesian statistics and bioinformatics and biophysics. I'm also now advisor and mentoring a student. He started a few months ago as a statistician, and he's working on problems related to the package to Arvis, problems related to this idea of exploratory analysis of Bayesian models. I'm interrupting to you, but it's just to say to listener that RVZ is actually one of the other open source packages you're working on. It's dedicated to visualization of uh, Bayesian models, yeah? 
Yeah, it's not only visualization. That's important part, of course, but it's also about diagnosing the result of uh, this. Because we use numerical methods in general to approximate the posterior, so you have to diagnose this numerical method to be sure that you are doing the right thing. You have to do other stuff like compare models. There are many things that are not directly related to the inference process, but are important in this workflow of Bayesian analysis. And Arvis is trying to cover most of this stuff. Yeah. So it's basically the stuff you do after you run your models with Markov chain Monte Carlo methods, and then you check the Bayesian machinery worked as expected. If there weren't any divergences or if there were divergences where they are and so on. Yeah, that's right. It's mostly what you do after you do the inference. He's, one of the problems he's working on at this moment is to try to improve our... We have inside Arby's KDE method, kernel density estimation method, that is used to represent in many plots the continuous distributions. KDE is like this soft or smooth version of historic. So he is trying to improve our KDE, also studying other methods related to how other people do kernel density estimation. That's what he's doing now, and he has planned to work on other problems, uh, including, for example, model comparison. We just uh, finished with the Google Summer of Code project, both in PyMC and Arbis. We mentor students. I mentor two students, one student from Argentina, another student from Barcelona, Spain. One of them, Martin Lozola, he works on bringing to PyMC a method that is uh, called BART. It's based on additive regression trees. That is basically like a random forest, Bayesian version of the random forest, where you use a prior not to put prior information you have about your problem, but generally the prior is there to regularize the, the inference. And in this particular case, regularize the inference means to try that each tree you use, this method uses some of decision trees. So the prior is there to say each tree is going to be not very deep. It's going to be very shallow. So each tree is going to explain only partially the data. So to, to have a good estimation, you need a lot of tree to contribute to the final estimation. Oriol, that's worth working with Arvis. He worked in many different areas in Arvis, including model comparison and checking diagnostic of MCMC methods on ours. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's what you were uh, talking about. Yeah, and actually, on this area, uh, I have too many questions for you on these uh, this projects that that really seems awesome and very interesting. Actually, I will uh, put in the show notes the links to different GitHub uh, repositories of both PyMC and, and Arvis for people to check if listeners uh, want to start uh, contributing. It's really interesting to follow uh, the work uh, you guys do uh, on these repositories. Maybe to, to talk about model comparison, because I know uh, this is a, an important topic for you. Uh, actually, there is a whole chapter in your book dedicated to this concept of model comparison. And I think most listeners have heard at least of these techniques, but for those who didn't, or for those who don't really use them a lot, can you introduce them and explain how to use them and why it's useful? The idea of model comparison is it's pretty natural when you start working with any model in general. At some point you arrive that you more than one model. And you say, okay, I have this model, this model, okay. Uh, I don't know, for some reason, I think all these models are reasonable and you have to decide not by your intuition, but some metric that if some model is really better than the others. So basically, this is the idea of, of model comparison. And specifically, when we're talking about statistics, 
things like machine learning, etc. And the thing is that if you only trust and how well your, your model fits your data, the data you use to get the model, you are going to quickly find that the more complex the model you create, the better it's going to fit that data. Yeah, so you're in a problem there. And the problem is, why is the problem that fits better to your data? The problem is that if you now offer this model new data, it's not always true that the model that did very well with the data you used to fit is going to also fit the new data. And this is what in, in machine learning, other fields, people call overfit. The thing is that your model is basically learning every detail of your data instead of a pattern or a signal that is there. So it's very, the, the problem is that it's not likely to generalize to yet unseen data. What you really want to get when you're comparing models is this generalization error, how on average it's going to behave when I put new data. This is bringing a little bit this idea of frequentist method. I mean, you're fitting your model using Bayesian statistics, but then you want to check frequentist properties that how, how it's going to behave when I present to different hypothetical data sets. Another problem when you have this, but there, there are many problems, but one problem with this is that in general, you don't have a lot of other data because if you have other data to test your model, you probably are going to want to include that data to fit your model to reduce the uncertainty. There are a family of related methods that deal with this and say, okay, how we can try to, without using really new data, how we can try to give a measure that says this model is better than this another model. And one thing that people generally do in machine learning, for example, in other fields also is this idea of cross-validation. But cross-validation basically means that you have to refit your model many times. So there are another branch of methods that are collectively called information criteria. The idea is that you can, based on certain theory, using your very same data you use to fit the model, you can estimate how well it's going to behave your model with unseen data. And two methods to do this that are, for example, available in Arbis, like look, both methods give in generally more or less the same if you compare them. They're, they're very quick to, to compute once you have your posterior, so you can check both to see what they are saying. But in general, when you see this method in general, you see that they tend to give the same result in general. One thing that is very nice about this Lu method, this uh, Lu method is basically an approximation to what is called leave one out cross-validation. The idea that you, you have a set of data, you remove one data point, you fit the model with the rest of the data point, and you test on this point that you leave out. And you, re you can repeat this many times. That's leave one out validation because you leave one point out. Lu is a way to approximate this without actually doing this many times. So it's pretty fast. And the good thing that you have is that have some warnings that's going to tell you when these approximations are likely to be failing. That's pretty nice. White has something similar, but it's not quite trusty, I think, at this point. That's something that uh, I think needs more research. It's very, very nice for me that you not only have a method, but you have a diagnostic of the method. So you know when things could be going wrong. And one thing in generally with, with this loop is that many times when you are seeing this flag telling you, okay, there is a warning here, it may also be indicating that there is some problem with your model, that somehow your model is misspecified. A classical example of this is that you, for example, are fitting a Poisson distribution to your data, but your data is over-dispersed. 
you know, so the, the Poisson distribution is, has the same parameter for the mean and the variance. So if you have data that have the mean and the variance are not the same, as generally happens, Poisson distribution is very good. So you maybe want to try something like a negative binomial distribution or a zero inflated negative binomial distribution. And the good thing is that sometimes these warnings are telling you this. They're telling you maybe you should try a Yeah, indeed, yeah. That's also quite interesting to pay attention to these uh, warnings because if your uh, model uh, can't really grasp dispersion of your data, that can be a, a problem for generalizing later. Yeah. And that's actually interesting that you take the Poisson models as an example, because in my experience, indeed, Poisson models can really give you a lot of a lot of warnings when you input them into white or loop. One thing that we are working now with the RBS team. We're trying to write a guide. It's not a book, but it's something in, it's more than the documentation that we actually have, and it's less than a book. But we want to explain all these methods and to bring these tips or these hints to what do you do if this fails, what you should do, and this stuff. I think we are going to have this material ready for by the end of the, the year. Yeah, I feel that that's something that is, is, is missing. For example, happened to me that when people see this warning, they don't like the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's like uh, when you're using uh, the new U-turn sampler and you have some warnings, then you use Metropolis, you don't have any warnings. It's still... Uh, the warnings are there, but you don't see them. So you're more confident about your model, which is quite worrying normally. Yeah, yeah. I think that this warning give a little bit of anxiety to people. I mean, this is the problem when you start doing the statistics in like, the right way is that you realize that methods are not automatical. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's also why I find uh, Bayesian methods really interesting because, uh, as you said, you really have to think about uh, the assumptions you put into the model through the priors and then how is the posterior uh, computed with MCMC and then how is your uh, trace looking, uh, how, which diagnostics you can run with, with RVs and so on. So, yeah, it's really actually a whole pipeline that you have to learn so it can be quite intimidating uh, at first, but then when you begin to see how each part goes into the pipeline, you, it really makes sense. And actually, as you, as you said, there are some limits, of course, to model comparison and especially to formation criteria like uh, Weicker-Lu. So you, you talked about uh, how it can tell you that maybe your model is missing something in the data. Do you think about other limitations that people have to pay attention to when they use these methods like uh, information criteria? Well, another thing that is, uh, I think is important but often overlooked is the idea that the only thing that you can do with this method is try to pick the best model among the models you have. But does not imply that you are picking the right model. There is a lot of problems with this idea of picking the right model. I think it's changed a lot from disciplines. Probably physicists in generally they think that their model somehow reflecting the true nature of stuff. But if you go to some branch of biology or probably social sciences, nobody is going to say that the model is true in any sense. So I think one problem is this that you are trying to pick the best model among the models you have. So I think that's an important thing to remember. And other things to remember is that these metrics like everything you generally do in statistics is trying to help you to decide, but you can do other stuff like trying to bring your knowledge about the problem. 
in general, it's very difficult that you put all your prior knowledge or your domain knowledge on a model. Even if you try hard, it's, it's difficult to do that. So when you check a model, you should check the model taking these things that you did not put directly in the model. The problem with that is that there is no rule. You can write and say, okay, I'm going to this step and then this step. It's something that you need to know from your domain knowledge. That's something that generally takes time because it takes time to, to gather that knowledge and to understand it the different relationships between things that you're trying to model. But I think it's, it's an exercise that we should try to do. Yeah, and so I think uh, also what you're hinting at is uh, maybe that if I understood correctly, information criteria, their job is to focus on prediction and not on causal inference, right? So if you're waiting for Wyke or Lou to tell you what the best model is in terms of causal inference, well, it's not its job, right? I mean, I, I think Wyke is gonna rate a model with uh, confounding variables better than a confounding model if the confounding model makes better predictions, right? So if you rely too much on information criteria then, and you don't have a causal model of the relationship beforehand, you can't really make good use of, of modeling comparison. I could ask you uh, a lot more questions, but I think, yeah. We're running a little low on time. I wanted to speak more with you about your experience about open source, because uh, as listeners understood, uh, I think uh, you're a very active member of the community. So we talk about PyMC, we talk about RVs, where you are a, a core developer for both. And I think you also contribute to a package named Bambi. So what is it uh, and wh what do you do there? Bambi is basically a way to, it's an interface to build Bayesian models in a much more easy way than PyMC. PyMC is already very easy, but you have to explicitly write your entire model. And sometimes, for example, if you want to do a, a Bayesian linear regression, you maybe want to use one line to do that, you know? In one line, you can say, I, I would, or, or maybe, I don't know, or maybe a, another model. So Bambi tries to provide this one line using a syntax that is very familiar to people working with R. So it's very familiar to statisticians. Of course, in Bambi, you can write your priors you want. So you can start with generally this one line and you can unfold it until you get something that is basically <laughs> PyMC, the syntax you use in PyMC. But I think it's, it's very, 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 very nice because allows a, a lot of researchers that they don't want to come with new models. They only want to run models that are already there for their, their analysis. So I think it's something that is very nice to have, at least for particular use. So I'm trying to collaborate and trying to help the, the core uh, developers there. And for example, at this point, I have been focused on bringing Arbis to replace the stuff that was doing, uh, was inside Bambi and say, okay, but this functionality is already on, on Arbis, so we don't want to duplicate code. I have been working basically on that. And about my general experience with open source, I honestly have to say that this is one of the most fulfilling experiences I have had and I'm having. I came from the academic world when you work hard to write some paper and then really don't know if somebody is going to get any benefit from that paper or if someone is going to read it or, or care about that. And in generally with open source, you get that even if you do some small contribution like fixing a box string or whatever, someone is almost instantly getting benefit 
from that. I, I really like this idea of, of working in a project that is uh, decentralized and more or less decentralized and very collaborative. So everyone is contributing according to their abilities or their time. In general, I think also the, the PIMC community, the Arbis community, the community and also inside the developers are very welcoming. Yeah, so they make you feel very well <laughs> with yourself. One thing, I think it happened to all, but sometimes we don't say that this idea that we want to contribute, but at the same time, we are not sure how much we know about something, so we don't want to screw things up. Good thing about open source, I think, very uh, like music, like punk music, you know? <laughs> if you know three, <laughs> yeah, if you know to play guitar, even if you know one song, you can do something. I think in some sense, <laughs> open source encouraged you to contribute what you know and also to keep learning so you can contribute more if you want but in general it's very welcoming community yeah that's true i have to second that because uh, actually you and, and other members of the PyMC community were very welcoming yeah each time i have uh, some question or uh, on the discourse or uh, even on github you have the repository of your book where uh, you answer every pull request uh, or issues that is raised by uh, readers or or else uh, it's very interesting to see how this community is evolving so definitely i encourage users to take a look at the different repositories and on a more concrete note uh, how much time do you spend each week on these open source projects i don't know really but <laughs> really I, i try to spend all the time i have if i could choose something to do all time i, I say okay i'm going to do basically working on these projects. Because I, I honestly say it's very nice to be able to contribute. And as I said before, you feel welcome. Even if you think your contribution is, is pretty small, someone else gives some value to the contribution. That's very nice. So I try to spend most of the time. I try to get my employer to pay me to do that. It's not easy because in the academic world, you have to publish papers, not write code. So the output is uh, very difficult to say to someone, let's check my GitHub repository. They don't pay you to do that, unfortunately. But well, I try to get paid to do that. Well, Osvaldo, thank you. That was really a very interesting uh, conversation. I think I let you go, but before that, I'm going to ask you the, the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. As I said in the first episode of this podcast, what's really interesting about these two questions as uh, true Bayesians is the distributions of the answers and not any particular answer. But so here is the first question for you. If you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? It's an easy question, right? Yes, super easy. No. I think, honestly, we should all be working on something like climate change. We should be working on things like how we are going to become, to create a new sociopolitical or economical system that works for everybody, if possible. But, of course, we are not doing that. <laughs> we are working on our problems. So, if I have to be something related to what I do, I think I would probably work on, on the same problems that I'm working now. I mean, these things that I mentioned you, like uh, trying to bring this non-parametric methods or this problem of, of how to compare models or things like that. Of course, if I have more money and we'll try to go more on the theoretical aspect of this stuff, but probably I will be doing exactly the same. Okay, great. And then the second question is, uh, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or, or even fictional, who would it be? 
I have the opportunity to have dinner actually with, with a guy that is like one of the best bio biophysicists we have. So I think I the name of this guy is Harold Schrag. He's uh, still alive, work at Cornell University, and he is still publishing publishing papers. So I have time to dinner with this guy, and also because I spent few months working in his lab, so I also spent some lunch with this guy. But if I have to choose another person, I think Richard Feynman is a physicist. He's a nice person, but mostly because he's a very, he seems like a very nice person to share. The <laughs> yeah, to, to have dinner with, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, to have dinner because I don't he used to play bongos and maybe we can gather and play bongos or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, guess, I guess it would be nice, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but not, not sure. Okay, I'm not. I'm not really answering because I'm not <laughs> no. But actually, you 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 already ate uh, with uh, with a, a great scientific mind uh, of yours. So my job here is done. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, uh, Osvaldo, for uh, for taking the time. I really love this dive into all you're doing. To be honest, I don't even know how you find the time to do all these things. But uh, it, it was really great. I feel like I will have to invite you again on the show because you do so many things that we only scratch the surface uh, here it's like a game of thrones yeah maybe for the, the second season <laughs> thank you for the opportunity i really like to talk this stuff so having the opportunity to be able to do so is very nice for me. so thank you and thank you again for uh, for your work and for your book that uh, I really enjoy and I really uh, advise it uh, to anyone trying to go deep into Bayesian methods. All the links will be in the show notes. So thank you again, Osvaldo, for taking the time and being on this show. Bye. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.